this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. And I love it when I get to meet great people actually in person, vis-a-vis Twitter. And while we're not meeting in person, because of obviously we're all into a global pandemic and quarantine. I'm really happy that I have Andy Edstrom with me today. He's a financial advisor and a member of the investment committee at West Cap Group. Andy had prior experience at places like Goldman Sachs uh, and also Tenenbaum Capital. And he is also the author of a great book called Why Buy Bitcoin. And so as everyone knows on my show, I love this bridge of traditional finance, people coming on that have found their way into digital assets. And so Andy, thanks for coming on. How are you? A uh, pleasure. Uh, pleasure is mine, David. I'm uh, I'm good considering the circumstances, and uh, yeah, can't complain. You know, I can still work because I'm one of these lucky people who's a knowledge worker, and uh, can still uh, you know work from home. Although it's been uh, pretty hair raising times in financial markets, uh, needless to say. So that's kept me busy for a couple months. But yeah, I'm good. How about you? Doing the best we can. That's kind of the way that I say these things these days, doing the best we can. Um, And so what we'd like to do on the show uh, before we get into some topics is get a sense of when you had your moment uh, into the world of Bitcoin. And again, I don't love to do the when Bitcoin moment in terms of pinpointing a date or a year. Um, But what I really like to do is when you found it and you started reading about it, and I imagine you read the white paper, of course, and then other things, but what resonated about the underlying capabilities and the asset and the technology of Bitcoin? What really kind of said to you, this is going to change the world and I have to really focus my time on it? Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I started focusing my time on it in 2017 in the middle of the year. Uh, It's probably second quarter. And I was like many, it was the third exposure, right? First exposure was an Economist article in 2013. I didn't get it at all. Second exposure was 2016 uh, when the Dow fork happened on Ethereum. And then 2017, people started pinging me. And I think, you know, in part, what interested me was was greed, right? Number go up. Um, when I was started looking at it in 2017, I think the market cap on Bitcoin was 10 or 20 uh, billion and you know the total crypto sphere was probably another 10 billion or what or something like that and so so there was something going on there and I saw that the that the number was going up um, and then of course I had covered tech you know kind of on and off earlier in my career and so I, I knew something about network effects and I knew um, something about uh, well I didn't know much about distributed systems but I knew that there was something going on there with respect to the technology and yeah I read the white paper although honestly I didn't get it the first time or even probably the second time but I'd say for me what what started what piqued my interest was that this thing was growing rapidly so so maybe there was something there and so 2017 obviously we saw a tremendous rise in the value of Bitcoin and reaching the all-time high of around 21,000. Um, and I think that kind of got everyone's interest. Obviously, myself coming from the family office world, I had already been into it for about a year or two before that. Um, but a lot of people started asking questions and you had the Jamie Diamonds of the world saying that it was a scam, but then all of a sudden the price kept going up and up and up and everyone started saying, well, maybe there's something here to look at. And then family 
office conferences in the beginning of 2018 started being filled with blockchain and digital asset and Bitcoin segments. And so it became an interest amongst many other people. And then, of course, we saw what happened with the price because it is a volatile asset and because it's still an emerging technology. And so it's just been a very interesting uh, point in time. But I want to get into some of the things you talk about in your book, but also in some of the things that we are talking about as a ecosystem. Right now, we're dealing with an unprecedented time with COVID. It has changed the dynamics from our home and our daily lives, but also to our economic systems. And what we're seeing right now is we're seeing the U.S. government printing and we obviously know that there is this meme out there, the printer go burr, which means that the printers are going nonstop and just printing fiat and obviously not really printing because it's all digital anyway. But um, we're seeing more money being printed effectively. We saw um, effectively $2.3 trillion a few weeks ago. We saw in total about $6 trillion um, from the U.S. government. Uh, Speaker Pelosi is asking for in the range of another $3 trillion. There is speculation that we're getting to a point, maybe we get over $10 trillion, maybe to the $15 trillions, uh, because we have about 30% of the workforce out of, out, of, uh, out of work right now. And so you talk about a century of debt, um, and you talk about this going all the way back to the 1930, 90, uh, 1930s, and you start seeing in the 1970s and 1980s, um, you know, this debt cycle starting to really become a problem. Talk to us about the history of debt here in the United States, and if you could also kind of opine what's happened recently as it relates to, you know, the fur further burden of debt uh, on, you know, fiat and especially USD. Yeah. Okay. Gosh, so much there, David. Um, I'll try to, uh, I'll try to compress as much as I can. So, and by the way, I'll, I'll sort of fold this into your earlier question, which is, you know, discovering Bitcoin, et cetera. I'll just say that, you know, through the boom cycle and the bull market in 2017, I did, I made the usual journey that many people do, which is, you know, looking at Bitcoin and then looking at all these, you know, whizzy new, better featured, you know, faster, better, cheaper, um, you know, cryptocurrencies. And then it took me a while, but I finally sort of came back to focusing on Bitcoin because of the debt problem, because of the hard money problem. And so, right. So getting to the last century of debt and, you know, I draw somewhat heavily from Ray Dalio um, in my book, but as you say, there's this graph of the last century of debt and it's, you know, it's pretty evident what's going on. Of course, in the 1920s, uh, you had the roaring, you had the roaring twenties, and there was stock market and other asset bubble. Then you had protectionism and you know reversal essentially of globalization. We'll come back to that point. This is you know almost a century ago now, but uh, the, the pattern seems to be repeating. And then you had you know FDR, and then you had World War II. And there was much worse stuff going on in Europe than in the U.S. Uh, but suffice to say that we came through it. And then you had the Bretton Woods gold-backed system. And when you look at just the total debt to GDP, and I'm talking about the US, although the pattern is broadly true throughout the world, total debt to GDP from you know, Bretton Woods start in 1944 or 1945 through 1971, when we left the gold standard, was basically flat. Uh, debt to GDP didn't really move while we were on a hard money standard. And actually, even prior to that, in the mention that in the uh, period I mentioned before, there were fluctuations. Um, we were sort of on, on and off the gold standard, and I won't get into the history there. And yes, uh, debt rose, uh, obviously, through the war period, 
but it wasn't it wasn't as dramatic as more recently. Okay, so Nixon takes us off the gold standard in 1971, and then debt just takes off like a rocket ship, and it goes from around 145 percent of GDP to 350 percent of GDP uh, right before the global financial crisis. And then you know we had a moderation period as people tightened their belts, and much of the debt you know was pushed onto uh, government balance sheets. But then it started to creep up again, and then of course COVID hit. Now, for me, learning about Bitcoin was in part a forcing function to learn about the debt problem. And so I focused on the debt problem because that's really the, the most important part of the, of the Bitcoin thesis. And so how do we get out of this, this debt problem, right? How do we get out of this issue of uh, you know 300 plus percent uh, of GDP debt? By the way, that was before all the <laughs> debt incurrence and money printing that you just described. Uh, I forget, there was some senator who used to say, uh, you know, a billion here, a billion there, uh, you know, pretty soon it, it, you're talking real money. And now we're talking about a trillion, trillion here and yeah. a trillion there. It's, <laughs> not even billion, it's not even billions anymore. It's trillions. And I, I think I actually put out a joke. I'm like, what do we do after trillion? Is it zillion? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Quadrillion. Will we get there? Um, so, yeah. So anyway, so that's where we are. So if there's too much debt, you know, there's, I believe, six ways it can we can work out of the debt. And they're all bad, right? There's austerity, that's belt tightening, politically impossible, basically. There's mass defaults. Okay, we had that in the Great Depression almost a century ago. That's also unpalatable. Okay, you've got this concept of jubilee, you know, it was called in the in biblical times a jubilee, which is mass, you know, debt cancellation. Well, we may see some of that. The problem is if you do it at scale, it really calls into question basic contract rights and property rights. So it's highly destructive to the to the basis of the economy. So so that's tough to pull off. More likely are the next three options, which is redistribution. That's basically you know tax and spend and reallocate. That's started. We'll probably see more of that. Um, item five is financial repression. This is a term that was coined in the 1970s by a couple of Stanford economists, and basically it means keeping interest rates very low. Okay, that's happening obviously, and potentially capital controls. And we sort of haven't got there yet, at least in the West. Uh, that could come. And then the last option, which is the best, is consumer price inflation, because that's the one that's least evident, at least for some period of time. And it doesn't, it, it, it's not, it's basically not as in your face of a, uh, of a debasement um, uh, as any of the other options, basically. So it's sort of the best solution. Now, now I want to talk about just real quick, a couple of economists. Okay, Milton Friedman, everyone knows Milton Friedman. Friedman says inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Okay. Now, that's true, but I, I like the insight of Steve Hankey, who's still alive today. He's, a, he's an economist at Hopkins. What he says is that inflation is ultimately a fiscal phenomenon. And what he means is, yes, if you print too much money, you'll get inflation. Like Friedman was right, but it's the scenario where the government is running huge deficits that it can't pay for. That's where you ultimately get real significant monetizations, and that's the ultimate driver of, uh, of inflation. Mm -hmm. So I see personally inflation as the most likely out for this debt problem. And when I published my book in September, this is before COVID, you know, if you'd asked me when, like how long is it going to take, I would have said in the next decade, right? But I don't know if it's two years away or 10 years away. Now, I don't think it's going to take 10 years. I think it'll probably happen within the next five and I can, you know, talk in greater detail about sort of why now and what 
factors underlying inflation, you know, are sort of are flipping at the moment. But uh, but I'll leave it there for a second. Yeah. And I think what's interesting and for those that have not read the Paul Tudor Jones letter that was also co-authored by one of the deputy directors at the IMF, Lorenzo Giorgiani. He talks a lot about this, and it's actually one of the prides and principles of the entire letter that we have magically, I think he uses the word magically, magically created all this money. And as I alluded to, I think the bill is somewhere in the north of $6 trillion. And the Federal Reserve about two weeks ago came out and said that they were looking to borrow $3 trillion. And so if anyone knows, obviously, any basics about investing, when you borrow money, there's usually interest on top of that. And so you have to pay the principal and you have to pay interest on top of that. Um, and so this idea of inflation or this idea of destruction of value of fiat, of USD, I think is something that is on a lot of people's minds. And in the conversations I've had with family offices and other institutional investors, they have not been really clear on what they think is going to happen. They think that we'll continue to keep printing paper uh, to pay for this mess. Um, But they also think that in terms of the world out there, that we are the best paper to own. So talk to us a little bit about inflation, about kind of all these thoughts. Yeah, that's great prompt. Um, So I agree with you. You know, there's starting, there's sort of starting to be an awakening um, in terms of the inflation threat. And we have lived through a period of, you know, let's say low inflation, at least as the government measures it, that's a whole other can of worms we, we can get into or not. But as reported, you know, measured and reported by the government, inflation, consumer price inflation effectively has been low for decades and decades. And in fact, there's an entire cohort or generation of people working in financial markets that weren't alive, or at least they weren't active in financial markets in the inflationary period of, you know, the 1970s and 1980s. So like they've never experienced it. But yes, there people are starting to to think about it. Um, so here's the framework that I apply. And by the way, the first thing we should say is nobody really fully understands inflation. I mean, economists try to create models, and some of the logic makes sense, and some of it is supported empirically. But there tend to be inflection points in inflation that are very hard to predict because I believe it's because it's based on you know human psychology and human action, right? It's the it's the common knowledge concept, which, you know, Ben Hunt describes, I don't think it's his original idea, but he's certainly popularized it. It's, it's not what everybody knows. It's what everybody knows that everybody knows. In other words, we haven't had inflation for decades and decades. And so the crowd assumes that it, you know, they extrapolate the, the past into the future. So they assume that it won't be a problem until there's some catalyst or some trigger, you know, they look around and, oh, the government's printing, you know, trillions of dollars now or 5 trillion or 10 trillion, and they start to wonder. And then they realize that their neighbors are wondering the same. And all of a sudden, at some point, you know, nobody wants to hold the fiat currency, or at least as much of the fiat currency uh, as they had been recently. And therefore, the velocity of money goes through the roof. And um, yeah, and that's, and that's sort of the point of, of consumer price inflation, potentially. However, however, right now, dollar is king, right? Um, the world's reserve currency looks stronger now than it has in a while, um, mainly because there's so many dollar liabilities, right? That's the euro dollar market, potentially tens of trillions. And there's all these dollars that are owed by parties that cannot print them, especially offshore. And so in a panic, yeah, people fly to the dollar. So, you know, will that continue in the short term or not? 
I honestly don't know. If we have another panic, you know, if there's a down leg in financial markets, you know, if, if economies reopen and uh, infection rates go up and or, you know, demand is weak because people aren't, you know, spending as much as they were before because they're still scared. So it's, you know, not a V-shaped recovery. If that uh, dynamic occurs, I could see the dollar, you know, rocketing up again. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there's sort of the short term versus the long term. I, what I am concerned about for the medium to long term, and this is, you know, a a couple or a few years out, is that eventually there's so much uh, printing of dollars that there's sort of a phase shift in people's perception about uh, the dollar's ability to hold on to its purchasing power. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not making a bearish bet on dollars in the short to medium term. Expect, uh, except with respect to the price of Bitcoin, <laughs> I am bearish on the dollar versus Bitcoin, which is uh, bullish, you know, Bitcoin. But, um, but that's sort of my my thoughts, you know, in the short term. And I, I could talk more about sure. sort of what I see driving inflation, but I'll leave it there. Yeah. So I think what we want to do because I want people to also be enticed to go and pick up your book, and hopefully people will listen to this and, and they will do that. Um, so one of the things there are two things I want to talk about uh, getting towards the top of the hour is. You mentioned that there are 14 characteristics of good money. You talk about scoring the dollar, gold versus Bitcoin. This is something also, as I alluded to, that Paul Tudor Jones did in his letter where he looks at hedges towards some of the issues that he is seeing out there uh, being presented by COVID and by the unprecedented amount of printing that are happening. So talk to us about the 14 characteristics of good money. Um, but then I also, lastly, as a financial advisor, um, this is something that we've been talking to more people about. You were one of the early ones. You were, dare I call it, on the fringes of obviously something you know we all think is exceptional in terms of Bitcoin and understanding Bitcoin. I'd love to get a sense from you from a financial advisor perspective, how you are talking to your peers in the space about it and what their kind of what their traps are, what their uh, kind of reluctance about it is. But, you know, as I said, first and foremost, I want to hear about these 14 characteristics of good money, uh, about scoring the dollar, gold, and Bitcoin, and I want people to pick up your book. But then I also want to hear about, you know, your life as a financial advisor who is also uh, heavily uh, reviewing, researching, and understanding Bitcoin. Yeah, sounds great. Okay, so 14 characteristics of good money. So I'll just say, by the way, um, which I talk about in the book, I write it in the in the preface, which is... You know, I took an economics degree, you know, from a good college. As you mentioned, I worked on Wall Street. I worked for Goldman Sachs or for a private equity fund that spun out with Carlisle. And then I worked for a, for a sizable hedge fund, you know, before I joined my family firm, which does wealth management. So basically, I spent a career in finance without understanding, you know, what is money, right? Like the actual under, underlying characteristics of money. This is sort of shocking. Um, but I recognize that anyone who was basically, you know, taught Keynesian economics is unlikely to have actually lifted the covers and really delved into what is money. So my interest in what is money is, you know, what are the underlying characteristics? Okay, yes, it's a medium of exchange and it's a unit of account and store of value. Well, first of all, it's really a medium of exchange across space and time. And store of value and unit of account are derivative thereof. Um, But also, medium of exchange across space and time is derivative of the underlying characteristics. And one of my frustrations with, you know, both the the Austrian, you know, economists as well as Bitcoiners was, I kept hearing hearing about there's you know there's four or five or six characteristics of money, and I wish it were that simple. <laughs> it would be nice if you could you know count them on one hand or even two. 
But if you really think about it, there's at least 14. Um, and they are identifiable, transferable, durable, divisible, dense, scarce, short-term stable, uh, long-term stable. Those are two different characteristics. Fungible, unseizable, censorship resistant, private, required for some purpose, and then backed by a powerful agent. And no form of money scores well along all these parameters. Now, I will admit that you know different people may value different parameters uh, differently, right? We all have different preferences. But one of the things I do in the book, as you allude to, is I score the dollar, and I score gold, and I score Bitcoin now, and I score Bitcoin in the future. And what I find when I score these various forms of money along these parameters is that the U.S. dollar is stronger than gold, um, but Bitcoin is already slightly stronger than gold. And what's more important to think about is the trajectory, right? Gold is mature. Gold ain't changing. It's been what it's been for you know thousands of years, and it has lots of virtues, but um, it has some shortcomings, and and you know that's all sort of, that die is cast. Okay, the dollar at the moment is gaining strength against other fiat currencies, or at least has lately in, in this crisis. But because of what you pointed out, which is the trillions of dollars of, of uh, printing, which is driven by deficit spending, uh, the dollar's trajectory is downward uh, in general, right? It's getting less scarce. It's getting weaker. And I look at Bitcoin's trajectory and I see, oh, well, Bitcoin is gathering strength. It has longer in the field, right? That Lindy effect. Every day that it lives, um, it gains more trust with respect to its security. Uh, it's getting more scarce, right? We just had the halving event, which was exactly what, what it's supposed to be, which is a non-event, <laughs> except that the supply goes down, which means that uh, there's less new supply to, you know, for the demand in the market to absorb. Mm-hmm. And then plus you've got all these smart developers and entrepreneurs uh, you know, building better ways to access it, to use it, better wallets, um, you know, better ways of managing and monitoring it. And you got people learning about it, right? You got guys like me from from Legacy Finance, you know, and other guys, other folks you've had on your show that are that are bringing it to the masses. So, so the trajectory of Bitcoin is upward, while the trajectory of the dollar and other fiat currencies, even more so, is downward. And gold is just sort of sitting there. So, I think it's important not to oversimplify what makes something good money. There are fourteen characteristics, and you know, I could spend another half hour talking about them, mm-hmm. but um, but that's that's the big picture. Got it. And then, so to with respect to your other question, you know, peers in wealth management. Yeah, I think that here's the thing about wealth management. Um, uh, differently than if you're, let's say, running a macro hedge fund, in wealth management, you have to. And this is going to sound like I'm making excuses for my for my peers, which I sort of don't mean to. But basically, you got a lot to do. You already got to allocate assets. And you got to manage, you know, client requests, and you got to do financial planning. And there's just a lot on a wealth manager's plate. So the wealth manager doesn't want to be bothered, you know, learning about a new asset class, especially when the mainstream media in general, you know, basically are negative and popularize all the sensationalist, you know, negative FUD, right? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt headlines. So I guess, you know, me personally, I've always been a little bit more of an independent, you know, thinker, kind of lone wolf. Um, Sometimes that's been to my advantage. Sometimes it hasn't been. I think this time it has been. But I also have the advantage of being, you know, at an independent shop. I mean, I think it's probably harder for a wealth manager at, you know, Morgan Stanley's wealth management arm 
to be uh, positive on Bitcoin when he's surrounded by the legacy banking system that benefits so mightily from uh, from the way it's been done with fiat, you know, for so many years and decades. So I have advantages in that uh, in that respect. But as far as you know, my peers, when I published the book, you know, in September, well, I started writing it in January, right? Bitcoin was in the three thousands, and I was like, all right, this is ridiculous. I got to get the word out. I got to educate people. You know, at this price, this may be the you know, this may be a very attractive buy, let's put it that way. And of course, there was all the diversification benefits. Those were already proven, and I cover those in the book, um, et cetera. And there was still a huge upside. But at the time, I would say my peers were mostly still nowhere. There have been a few, a very small handful that, you know, were ahead of this. Um, I don't think any of them have written books, but they've, you know, talked about it in public. But yes, for the most part, the wealth managers are still catching up and, you know, I'm banging the drum and, and trying to get the word out there and trying to get people to, to read the book. But it's it's an uphill battle. What can I mm-hmm. say? Yeah, I think what we've talked about before is this idea of transference of credibility. You know, when you look at an investment, whether it's a more private equity, venture capital investment, a direct investment, you always typically look at the cap table or you have your principal look at the cap table and say, okay, who, who is on here that I know? Um, it could be the greatest thing since sliced bread or the, the reinvention of the wheel. Um, but if they don't know anybody else or they might not have had dinner with somebody else on the cap table or they have never heard of somebody else on the cap table, there's always this negative bias. And it's just, it's just the way that the system works today. And it's strange, but it, it's the way it goes. And so I think as we see over the last few weeks when Jim Simons and Renaissance came out publicly about their uh, interest in pursuing uh, in their fund uh, the CME futures on Bitcoin, and as we obviously saw the very eloquent uh, letter by Paul Tudor Jones and his uh, exposure on CNBC talking about Bitcoin as a diversifier and something in a world where hard fiat, hard cash is something that many of us right now consider something that actually can get us sick because the virus can be on it. And so in a world where you actually don't want to hold physical cash in a world that's moving to much more of a digitization, um, it just, all the themes kind of fit into place. So there's this idea of transference of credibility. And I think that will lend people in uh, the traditional wealth management world to say, okay, yeah, I'm bandwidth constraint and I don't really have a lot of time because as you alluded to, it's not just about, you know, allocating to different stocks or bonds or fund managers. There's a whole, you know, cornucopia of different things, especially taxes, uh, that everyone has to worry about. Um, but there needs to be something that kind of says, okay, I'm pulling you by, you know, the, the, the coattails here. You got to take a look at this. There's a reason why you got to take a look at this. And I think we're starting to get that kind of push uh, and people are starting to say, okay, well, I really got to take a look now. And so, as I've said before, it's a very special time in the evolution of the asset of Bitcoin. And so, you know, the work that you've done, obviously the book that you publish is fantastic. And I uh, will try to put a show liner there so people can find where they can get it. One thing I want to do, Andy, before I let you go is where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks, David. Um, of course, following me on Twitter, uh, it's Edstrom Andrew is my handle. Uh, the book is called Why Buy Bitcoin? Uh, the subtitle is Investing Today in the Money of Tomorrow. And you can get it on Amazon. Um, I do have a personal website. It's andyedstrom.com. And that has my other media appearances, um, You know, stuff I've had published in the Wall Street Journal and The Economist, as well as podcasts uh, that I've appeared on. 
And then, of course, I've got my firm. Uh, that's Westcap Group, um, www.westcapgroup. Uh, we do wealth management. So anybody who you know might be a Bitcoin or a crypto enthusiast, but uh, you know needs some insight on on the rest of the wild and woolly world of assets and investment, um, I'm available there. And then, of course. Um, you mentioned, I think, uh, my role of he- as he- head of institutional at Swan Bitcoin, and that's mm-hmm. swanbitcoin.com. And that's a service that basically just allows you to save in Bitcoin, you know, dollar cost average, however much you want per week to, uh, to accumulate over time in this important asset. Fantastic. And I definitely recommend reaching out to Andy. I've enjoyed his narratives and what he writes on Twitter every single day. He's very insightful. And uh, as I said, love the fact that he has been able to meld both worlds from traditional finance into this new asset class. So Andy, thank you for coming on. And uh, we'll catch up with you in a few months to see how things are going. Everyone check out the book and we'll be talking to you soon. Take care. Thank you, David. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.